Hey everybody, welcome to the JU Israel Teachers Lounge. I'm co-host Michael Unterberg with my co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Going pretty good there, Michael. Well, we're not in a bagel shop today. We're trying something a little bit different. We have uh, sort of a broader set of goals. So, But just in case they were worried, we did have bagels for lunch. We did. We ate bagels today, so this podcast should work fine. You will notice that it sounds different. We're doing this from three different locations over Skype. Uh, and if you're wondering why there are three people when you've only heard so far uh, me and Alan, I want to introduce you guys to a new guest on our podcast, and that is Yadidya Kennard. Yadidya, you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi. Okay. Uh, Yadidya is an expert on Israeli politics. He's very involved. Uh, I think I could even say that uh, generally he works for a particular party. We don't have to get into that right now. We can talk about later maybe uh, what party Yadidya works with. He is an app programmer, and he also happens to be my son-in-law. And I use him as one of my experts for inside Israeli politics. Is that a fair right. uh, assessment, you did you? Um, well, I'm definitely a son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and true. I think, Michael, I know, it's, although it's very cool to be your son-in-law, and there are many out there who are thinking about that, um, he also has a really cool job. He does. You want to say what you do for a living, you did you? Um, yeah, I work for a company called Wix, and I am on their mobile team. I write apps in Android and iOS and things like that. Which is pretty cool. So we apologize that the uh, audio this week is not up to our usual level, but we thought specifically because of what's coming up this month in Amona. Now, I know that a lot of people aren't what's following... What's happening right now? It's yeah, happening yeah, yeah. This month. Well, what's happening right now? What's it? So... Well, right now, in the Knesset, they are arguing over a new law that was sparked by the whole Omona controversy um, that has to do with uh, the legality of the settlements, and specifically settlements that have been um, built on what is proven to be private Palestinian land, um, and they've been addressing that now for almost continually for a week in the Knesset. Um, with uh, with a new bill to try and work this whole thing out. Um, well, unless you follow the Israelis' news closely, you may be missing it, because certainly out of Israel, I don't think this is much of a news story yet. It hasn't exploded yet. But December 25th, the Israeli Supreme Court is demanding that the state of Israel evacuate and destroy a settlement that it has deemed illegal. And so things are going to get Unless somehow they manage to delay it again or, or block it, this is going to or be a, to an agreement. Yeah, this is going to be a big story moment, this month. None of this look likely. Sorry, but at the moment it does not look likely that they'll reach any sort of agreement or manage to delay it again. I I, I, w I wouldn't bet on that personally. Well, either way, we've been we've decided that for this week. Because people may feel disconnected, and also we feel the media has not done a great job of explaining what's happening and what's going to happen in Amona, this week's episode is dedicated to explaining that story, which is right now on a simmer in the Israeli news, but I think will boil uh, really within the next few weeks. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I yeah think, definitely. I think We so. can at least all agree on that. Okay. I think depending on what news you follow within Israel, then it's already been on boiling point for a while. Okay. I think what uh, I think what uh, 
Michael is referring to as the boiling point is a direct confrontation between um, the settlers living in Amona and uh, government uh, police, you know, forces that are going to have to remove them. Actual physical confrontation as opposed to political yeah. wrangling. Yeah. Yeah. So before you did you before we ask you to give us some political and legal background, Alan, I know that uh, in Amona there already was an attempt to, and uh, that the Sharon government had to evacuate some settlers. Yeah. They did, yeah. So can you give us a little context of why Amona has been such a you know hot issue for so long and what happened back then? So Amona has been around for about 19, 20 years as a settlement. It is an offshoot settlement of a much bigger settlement, Ofra. Ofra is the first settlement from the Shamron that was settled back in 1977-ish, maybe a couple of year, a year or two before. Did you can correct me if my dates are off. Um, and Amona in, in the 1996, 97, um, they went to another hilltop adjacent to Ofra to set up a, a new neighborhood or a new settlement, you could say. Um, and by 2006, uh, um, but everybody should really check on the exact dates, um, 2006, the Sharon government, um, under, again, a court order saying that some of those homes were built on private land, uh, went in to evacuate, um, I think, nine houses. And it was just after the evacuation of Gush Katif, um, which had gone over, as most people know, very emotional, very dramatic, but but for the large majority, very peaceful. Um, and there were many at Amona who said, well, it's not going to happen again. And Amona almost became like a last stand for Gush Katif, you could say, in Israeli um, consciousness, especially consciousness of, of young religious Zionists. Well, I think it's and fair it, to say that Sharon, that was sort of... Ariel Sharon, who was then prime minister, wanted to disengage not only from Gaza but from most of the West Bank, and Amona was his like opening vow. Well, not really. No, 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 not Amona. Four Yishuvim were also evacuated when Gush Katif was in the Shomron, in the in the in the Samaria. Uh, that already had happened. That had already happened with Gush Katif. At the same time that they evacuated from Gaza, Gush Katif was the Jewish area in Gaza. We're being very general. Um, for also for for um, isolated uh, settlements in the Shomron were also uh, were also evacuated. This came after that, and they weren't evacuating the whole Yishuv, but rather nine houses in there who it was deemed to be on Palestinian land. And again, it was a little bit it was different than Gush Katif and the other ones because this was deemed illegal by Israel's Supreme Court, whereas Gush Katif was a, polit a direct political move and decision. It had nothing to do with legal or illegal settlements. Right, because uh, although there's controversy internationally about the right of Jews to live in the West Bank, the Israeli Supreme Court says it is legal for Jews to live right. in the West Bank. The issue here is, what if somebody else owns the property? Right. So that, but it became psychologically, at least in the in in many activists, especially young activists' minds, of like a last stand, even though there were kind of two different issues, and it exploded into a very unfortunately violent evacuation. Um, many of the activists were were, were injured and hurt um, by by police. Um, police were injured and hurt, um, and it became a, a very uh, very unpleasant. You could say chapter 
in this whole um, settlement uh, issue. And that was, I think, 2006. And since then, again... That happened with Amona, if I could just step in, is that a lot of the, especially, as you said, the younger activists and the younger people um, who'd watched Gush Katif be um, evacuated, they'd seen their leadership promise them for years that that would never happen and fight against it politically for years in the Knesset and in protests and shutting down roads and all sorts of protests around the country. And right up until the last minute, they were promised by their leadership, their rabbis and political leaders, that there was just no way that it was going to happen. And they trusted them and followed their advice and kept with the non-violent protests right to the end and saw that it didn't help. And that caused a major um, breakdown in the um, authority within the settler movement with the uh, youth who were suddenly disenchanted and realized that they couldn't stop anything politically. And Amona was the symbol of that um, disengaged, disenchanted youth, mistrusting and not following their authority of the um, older leadership anymore. So that's sort of what happened with Amona. It was a symbol of the uh, just inability to stop things like that happening politically. Well, Absolutely. Good, good, good. I, actually, I actually spoke to uh, one of the young activists who were there. You could say B'nai Akiva. I'd worked, she was a Madricha on a B'nai Akiva program that I was working on as an educator, of course. And she, all, she even went further and said, we missed Kush Katif. She wasn't able to go to Kush Katif. She wasn't going to miss Amona. And they went out there in droves because they didn't want to miss, miss Kilu, their, their opportunity. Well, um, the good news is that in the Middle East, Locations don't hold on to a lot of symbolic meaning, meaning that increases tension when yeah. politics uh, start to fire up, right? Like everyone here keeps a cool yeah. head. So mm-hmm. Amona has all of this history, all of this background. How that was it, sarcasm. If that was sarcasm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we should have a, sarca- a sarcasm uh, audio signal or something. Ding, ding, ding. Michael's yeah, being sar- sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's already a very, very complicated place how 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 do we end up at the current crossroads so 10 years yeah 10 years on for the last 10 years there have been more um contested land on amona uh brought to the supreme court back and forth this and that until finally i think two years ago the supreme court decided that the the it needed to be evacuated because there was uh, palestinian private lands there what have you and the date eventually was pushed off until it was set till December 25th, 2016. This is the final, final date. It's been pushed off many times. The final date was originally in 2013, and right. then the government um, appealed on that based on several uh, criteria, and for the first time in 2013, the government asked the Supreme Court to hold off for diplomatic reasons, um, which is interesting. But the final date, which the Supreme Court will not budge on, is December 25th. So, so how, why did, how did we end up here, you did? Yeah, how did we end up with this particular uh, fight over Amona now? How, what what exactly is going on? Can, can I ask it a little different way, maybe, or maybe we'll ask both, and then you can address both. Which is the which is you just you said earlier, okay, this is it. It's not going to go past December 25th. But now you just said it keeps it's gotten pushed off so many times, final, final dates. So how how why are you so convinced that this is going to be the final date? I think that it has to go in with what's happening politically. I think those two yeah. questions are linked. Okay, so 
I think as far as the Supreme Court, they've accepted every appeal that could have been given. And there's really, uh, it's very hard to see grounds for an appeal past this date. They've given every chance for um, any other uh, way out, any appeal to be made. Um, the last appeal was made by the Attorney General just last week and was turned down by the Supreme Court asking for a further extension. Um, so it seems, I don't think anyone in the government at the moment thinks that the Supreme Court itself is going to uh, delay it. Um, the other way that they were trying to uh, stop this evacuation, well there's two. There's either some sort of deal with the people in Amona where they would leave Amona and move somewhere else, but, and they're working on several deals like that at the moment. The latest one, they tried to uh, move the issue of just a couple of hundred meters uh, along the hill, and then they realized that the land that they were trying to move it to also was in the same sort of situation, so they canceled that. And I think yesterday they tried to come up with a plan where they would move everyone temporarily into Ofra, which is the Sort of near a settlement, and then set up another yeshuv nearby near Shvutrachel. Uh, but the people from Amona turned that down, and the people from Amona now, like you say, because of symbolism, and they see this as a precedent, will not accept any anything except staying in their houses. Well, what's what's the problem exactly? Why is the Supreme Court saying it's illegal? If it's legal for Jews to live in the West Bank, why is Amona a problem? So there's two issues about legality of settlements in the West Bank, which people often confuse and people try and ignore the differences between sometimes. And that is sovereignty and ownership. So, for example, in Israel, you can have the case where Israel is sovereign. The sovereign power is the Jewish state of Israel, but yet Arabs still live there and own land. So you can have land in Israel, which is in a Jewish state, but owned by an Arab, and there's no problem with that. And in the same way, you can have land in the in the Shtachim, in the West Bank, which whatever you agree on the, or agree or disagree on who is sovereign there, if anyone is sovereign there, and whether Jews have the right to live there or not, you still have land which is owned. Now, and that land can be owned by anyone. Now, the problem with that is the land ownership isn't so clear cut. Uh, you have land which was registered with the uh, British Mandate, you have land which was registered with the Jordanians, and you have some claims which go back to the Ottomans. So you can have something which, and of course many people who had been living there moved, or there was inheritance over several decades and generations. So you can have someone coming with a claim with an Ottoman document, and the Supreme Court can say, yes, that's a legal document. Under Ottoman law, you owned it. No one else owned it since then, so you still own this. So what happened in many cases, and it's not just in Amona, there are um, probably thousands, I've seen numbers between four and 8,000 uh, houses in the situation where people have set up a settlement, which the Supreme Court or anyone considered legal, sometimes even with governments uh, supporting them, uh, and then several years or even decades later, someone has come forward and claimed the land with a legal ownership. Uh, in some cases, and in Amona this is such a case, those 
um, owners of the land probably didn't even know they owned it until yeah, they left. Um, so that's really what I wanted to ask you. Why is it if people have been, if, if Jews have been living there for decades, why is it that suddenly some Arab person woke up and said, this is my property? Where were they before? Okay, so there are a couple of reasons why that could be. But one of the most common reasons, and what is the case in Amona, is that a left-wing activist organization who wanted to cause problems for settlements and as part of their ideology is to try and get rid of the settlements, they did research and they went back as far as they could and they finally found people who were registered as owners of the land and then contacted them and then represented them in court. So whether or not, and the fact is that pretty much everyone agrees that this is privately owned land by the people claiming it, the reason why the case is being brought is activism. Alan, I'm curious what you think about that. What do you think about um, anti-settlement activists using this legal method as a way to move against settlements? You did you saying that's clearly what this is? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's disputed. Uh, what? The, which part? That this what do you is think about activism? that tactic? Yeah, of legal using the law as a method of activism for these left-wing organizations. Interesting. The Mosaic magazine just came out about an article about it. You can check it out. Maybe we'll post it on there, talking about Israel's legal activism. It's not been. It's no secret that that Israel has one of the most active Supreme Courts in the Western world. But you know what? They're playing. It seems to me like they're playing under the rules of the game. <laughs> I mean, that's the game. The game is is politics. The game is legal. The game, you know, and so they have an ideology for sure, and they're pushing their ideology, and they're using they're using the system to push their their political ideology, just like it's hard to the argue other side that. does, just it's like hard, the right yeah. wing does. It's hard to argue the right, that the it's democracy. How did the settlers do the same exact thing? I mean, they went up to a hill, started building, and said, "Give us and give us infrastructure to the government because we're here." That that was that's also the game, and the government said, "Oh well, they're there. I guess we have to give them infrastructure." So, like, they're both sure. using the system. That maybe the system is, is I don't know. Uh, I, I want maybe the system is not the greatest system, but but they're using it, and they're using what means in the democracy to push their agenda. Well, That's here they're what using you do. property law. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to argue that property law is a is a weird form of governance. And, and, and also. And what I just want to say, what you said before is, well, how is it all of a sudden that they came up and they didn't claim the lands? I mean, it's been in the court cases for decades, you know, for last, you know, you know, since uh, the, the early part of the 2000s, it's been going through the court. So it's not just like all of a sudden they woke up and said, um, let's destroy a settlement. You know what I mean? There are also Jewish organizations which are working in, especially in areas of uh, East Jerusalem and Hebron, who are doing exactly the same thing finding um, uh, buildings which were owned by the Jewish community back before 48 and that were taken by the Jordanians and handed out to people and they're using the same laws to claim them back. Right, and it's a, and it's a very, I was actually, uh, two short stories. So two days ago I was in Amona or right adjacent to it in Ofra with, one, with, uh, with uh, TVA, one of our partner schools, and we had a resident from Amona come and speak to us and he he feels, from his perspective, it's a total conspiracy against um, the re the residents of Amona and particularly the settlers. Um, that that's what they're they're pushing a, a major conspiracy against them. 
um, because people who who don't want Jewish settlement in the in the in the territories. Well, to be a conspiracy, doesn't it have to be somewhat secret? Like this is a very open political battle. So he he claims that there's a lot of things that are misrepresented in the media that you don't get the truth and, and whatnot. Um, uh, you know. That's as conspiracy theories go. The second one is more about what Yadid was saying. A couple years ago, I was back. I was on a on a um, seor uh, of the shuk in Hebron um, uh, with a with a Jewish guide and a Jewish group. And one of the group asked him exactly that. Well, this you know because we were seeing Jewish homes and things like that. He was showing out, and he says, "Well, why don't we claim them back?" And the Jewish guide, who was not, who was a, a resident of either Hebron or Kirat Arba, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big lefty, say that is a very, very slippery slope to go down to start claiming these places back in Hebron and, like you said, East Jerusalem. Because where does it end? Because there's plenty of people who have deeds to homes in Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, or Haifa, or what have you. Um, so it's it's a bit of a Pandora's box, but. It's also not so surprising that people on both sides of the ideological aisle are using this tactic. It's an available it's tactic. It's very clear that that's what's happening here. This case has been brought by an organization called Yeshdin. Um, there is law, and that's what they do. And this is an organization that's funded by like all of these organizations, the EU, Norway, various Germany. European countries, Germany, Britain, Ireland, and the new Israel Fund, so, and George Soros. So all the usual suspects are there. Like this is a case of that, and that's what I think that the Israelis. Actually, there was just a uh, poll published. If we can take polls, right, saying that Israelis don't trust the left, and we're talking about Israelis now. Um, don't uh, often don't trust the left of a very a very uh, um, um, negative attitude towards that, and, and and I think that Israelis often feel that there's this, there is this conspiracy out against them now, whether it's not, but but that there's a lot of money coming from politically left agendas from Europe and from other places to to uh, influence their political agenda here. But if they're doing it uh, above above the, you know. If you can read about it in newspapers, if they're identified publicly, then I don't know that I'd call it a conspiracy. You can you can choose your side. Well, I think I think I don't think we're disagreeing really. I think uh, I think that the messenger is part of the message. What does that? What mean? do you mean? I think that um, whether or not it's a legitimate tactic, I think the people using it is part of what. Um, I think that affects how people feel about it, and I think it's legitimate for that to affect how people feel about it. And you think when it's not just an internal, internal influences, you're saying the external influences people are reacting to. Yeah, I, I, it might be an emotional reaction, but it's legitimate. So yeah, all of these all sides is a conspiracy. It's it's all, all of this is politically legitimate. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm just. It, it it does get very complicated when there are issues this tense and, and people are... Can we get some clarity here, by the way, on the law? You did, can you explain the legal issue here? Okay, so what the um, 
Knesset has been trying to do, and what the government and parts of the government in fighting against itself have been trying to do, is to pass a law that will get round the Supreme Court in a way to legalize Amona. That was the original aim. And that's why this is all coming to a head now, um, two weeks or three weeks before the evacuation is meant to happen. How do you so, make a law that says we don't have to listen to the Supreme Court? What does that mean? Well, Supreme Court is the judicial branch of the Israeli government or of the Israeli state, and their job is to enforce the law. So if you make a new law which says, no, what you just said is wrong, then that's what the Supreme Court now has to enforce. They also are to interpret law. Supreme Court's job is also to interpret law. Of course. So if you make a law that is specifically designed to get around something the Supreme Court says, that's technically legal, and that makes the Supreme Court's previous uh, judgment irrelevant. How does the lack how does the lack of a constitution affect this uh, this battle between the legislature and the Supreme Court? It affects it in several ways, um, but the Supreme Court has decided that it can interpret what um, the Knesset passed as a basic law as a uh, sort of constitution. So they have some way of uh, saying that laws themselves are unconstitutional, which has been tested and upheld in various court cases. But in this case, the problem is not so much as the Israeli constitution, but the lack of Israeli sovereignty over Amona. So it's an interesting case, and the, the uh, Supreme Court and the Attorney General, in fact, think that there is no legal way to pass the, a law which gives the Supreme, which gives the Knesset authority over uh, land rights in the Shtachim. Look, part of it is is goes down to the bottom line. As one of my students in the other day at Dina and TVA said, oh, Area C, we'll get into all that, Area Confused, meaning Israel has never made definitive legal decisions about um, the West Bank other than the Jerusalem area. Um, outside the Jerusalem area, Israel has not made legal, legal decisions. So as you say, we've never really said we're sovereign here. We've never annexed it. We've never legally incorporated it to Israel. So now we rule it militarily, and then people go and set up land, but there's no real mechanism um, to, you know, make it part of Israel. Interestingly, uh, Bibi Netanyahu himself said yesterday that this new law, which is starting to be passed as we speak, is the first step on the way towards sovereignty. He said this is a step away from two states and a step towards Israeli sovereignty. And for that reason, there's been uh, 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 things said by the Americans, by the Germans, and I'm sure there will be by others who are very worried about this because they see it as exactly the same thing. Well, what it's is the concept national attention, exactly. What is this what? law? What is the law they're trying to pass? The Attorney General said it won't, you can't do it, but they're work literally, as you said, as we are speaking, they are arguing about it in the Knesset. What is this law they're trying to pass? Okay, so this law is called in Hebrew Chok HaStara, which means, I guess, the arrangements law. And the idea started from Amona. So the idea was, well, the Supreme Court says that we can't build here because it's privately owned, so let's try and make a law around that. So what they came up with is this. If you built on land, which, and you built either with the support of the government or innocently thinking that this is state land which you're allowed to build on, and retroactively it turns out that this was privately owned land and it's proved to be so, 
then instead of removing the house, you, the land will stay in the ownership of the Palestinians, but their rights to use it will be taken away in return for compensation of either uh, land instead or 125% of the value in cash. That's the law. The law also has a clause which says if there is any area which is currently under Supreme Court injunction or any sort of legal proceedings, then those legal proceedings are put on hold. And after this process of taking away the land rights has been completed, those injunctions will be cancelled. Now, the irony of this law is that the coalition couldn't agree on that because the, the um, Supreme Court probably wouldn't find it legal and the Attorney General said it would be illegal. So there was a uh, split in the coalition. So Habayat UD sponsored this law together with some members of Likud. What is, and, Alan, can you give a little background on Bayou Houdi, maybe? Well, Bayou Houdi more or less goes back to the old National Religious Party. Um, Bayou Houdi, I think, what's it called now today in, in English? Jewish home. Um, the Jewish home, um, which is basically, again, a, for the most part, a religious Zionist uh, party that is one of its main, main real population and platforms is building uh, settlements and and really um, legalizing the settlements and annexing the West Bank. To, and they're to on the and they're on you did you they're on um, Netanyahu's coalition. They're part of the government. They are part of the government. So their people really see them as the reason they voted for them is to defend settlements, and it would be a disaster for them if they were in a government which evacuated settlements. So. They have uh, several positions within the government as members of the coalition, and one of those is the chairmanship of the Ministerial Legislation Committee. To get a law to be a law, and especially a law sponsored by the government, the, that committee has to put it on the table. So despite Netanyahu's objections, they put it on the table of that committee, and no one in the coalition could really vote against it because it would just go against their, their people, like their voters wouldn't, wouldn't allow it. So even though the Attorney General and the Prime Minister maybe was against it and tried to get them to vote to, to take it off the table, um, 10 members of the Ministerial Committee voted for it and the rest abstained. So it got put on the Knesset table. Um, the only thing that happened next uh, well, the thing that happened next that confused it even more is that another party, which is Kulanu, which is Moshe Kaplan's party, he's a former minister from Likud and now runs his own party, um, and he is seen as slightly to the left of Likud, and he's like the moderate end of the coalition. They said they wouldn't support any law that would uh, damage the authority of the Supreme Court, which people saw as a little strange because the Attorney General had already said that this law would. So the deal they came to was that they would support the law except for the clause that cancelled retroactively any Supreme Court order. So the irony of this whole situation is the law that they're fighting about and they're trying to pass in the Knesset now, which was brought in because of Amona, will have no effect on Amona. So why did why are they basically willing, you know, Naftali Bennett, the National Religious Party, and the others who are pushing this law, why are they willing to sell Amona under the bus? 
Well, that's the question, and in the same words as the people from Amona are asking. There are protests outside Naftali Bennett's house. The people in Amona have, for months, but especially recently, been extremely angry with Bayat and they have said they're selling us away because, and Abayyudi have been trying to defend themselves by saying, "Well, we're passing a law which is going to sort out the status of thousands of other homes and four thousand, in fact, four thousand homes that are in the similar status as Amona." Yeah, exactly. But the people from Amona aren't accepting that, and there's going to be problems. Is it fair to say Netanyahu, I think, built himself an entirely right-wing coalition. He didn't allow any real left-wing parties or influence into the coalition to make him a sturdy political base so he could do what he wants. In this particular instance, it's a little bit working against him because if the Supreme Court says he has to evacuate a settlement, he could lose control of the government over this, couldn't he? They're all right-wing. It's possible. I think... I'm not sure how much I would blame Bibi for the makeup of his coalition. I'm not sure if there were really any other options to him. Um, I'm not sure that the government would fall over this anyway, because Abayi seemed to have mostly stepped into line. I think there was one member of the coalition who actually voted against the law in its preliminary reading, and he was a member of Likud who voted against it because he called it theft, and that's Benny Begin. Um, who's always been seen as the moderate. From but the also Benny Begin has, been seen the, has always been seen as the moral voice in, in the Likud and, and in the right wing of Israel, right? He's, well, he's historically, yes. At the moment, he's suspended from Likud. Correct. But, uh, but that's coming back. I mean, they did it as a performer, not really, you know, um, to throw out. He's the son of former Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Correct. And he's always seen as the moral voice. So uh, can I ask the question? You'll tell me maybe if, if this is a good question or not. But so where is the moral or, or, or where, where is the justification coming from to say you can take private land away from someone and give it to someone else? Well, under Israeli law, if you build a house on someone's land and you didn't realize it was their land and the value of the house is now worth more than the land, then you don't destroy the house, you pay compensation. So one of the biggest defenses for the, the law is that it's bringing the law in the Shtachim into line with the law in Israel, which is also one of the biggest arguments against it because what right does Israel have to impose their law on the Shtachim? So the people in Amona feel like if they were doing this in Israel, and the example they bring up is if they were Bedouin in the Negev, doing the same thing on land that was owned by Jews, the Supreme Court would go the other way. And they might have a point there. But then it's the Shtachim. It's not Israel. So this is, again, what I said earlier, people confusing ownership and sovereignty. And then the people who think that Israel should be sovereign in the West Bank, acting as not acting as if the Supreme Court should think they're sovereign in the West Bank. So there's all sorts of complications on it. It is endlessly complicated. I do hope that this has been helpful to give people a heads up about what's coming ahead in the news and a sense of understanding. I would say, at least for me, and you can tell me what you think, Alan, I think to me the most helpful wording was the difference between ownership and sovereignty, that these things get very confusing 
when and 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 what the left is fighting is a battle over what is their goal to fight challenge sovereignty and they're using ownership as the tool i think the left wants to give back what the left believes very very strongly that um the only moral justification for us being here is if we provide also a space for Palestinians to have their own state. I think that they view that for whichever way, whether we were forced into it, not forced, it doesn't matter whichever way, the fact that a Palestinian state didn't come into existence in 1948 is a moral block on, on the state of Israel as we exist today. So it really is a battle between the left and the right over... I think so. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. I think you can really say that. And by I just want to say something. Maybe I'm going too far now. But maybe I'm going too far now. But um, the it, we started off, you said, well, I, th- I don't think there's going to be an agreement. You never know these things. You know, go down to the last word. There's going to be tremendous pressure on the people from Amona, from the settlers themselves. It's already happening. They're getting tremendous set, uh, pressure. Um, to, to settle. And we know there's tremendous amount of precedent. Ofra itself was a, was a negotiation. They went to Sebastia and then they got offered to Ofra. Or in Hebron, the original, you know, Kirat Arba was set up because they tried to set up something in Hebron. They made a deal with the government and set up Kirat Arba and it got much bigger. So you never know. I'm hopeful that there'll be, it won't end in, in violence, well, but we'll rather. You did, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you did just point was that the Supreme Court is out of maneuverability. In other words, they've they've handled the last appeal they can. And so the order from the Supreme Court is now unbreakable on December 25th. Um, I think so. I, as Alan said, there have been cases before which have been negotiated at the last minute. There was a case a couple of years ago with uh, a place called Migron, which had a similar case. And in the end, they did come to an agreement uh, where they moved the settlement. Um, the problem is in this case that it's very close to the deadline, and no one seems willing to budge. Like, there have been deals offered, and they're just not being taken by either side. Well, what what we'd like you to do, I guess, listeners, is to keep a close eye on the Israeli news, watch for stories about Amona. If you have questions, when you have questions, please send them to us. We'll answer them as best we can. As you know, the point of this podcast is to make sure people feel connected and close to Israel. And in trying to understand what's going on, our job is to have you back. You're back. So thank you so much, Yadidya, for clarifying what is really a complex issue that I think is still under the radar for most people outside of Israel. But in Israel is really... I'm feeling pretty nervous about it. What's your temperature, guys? Your Your... Alan, I think, is more optimistic, and you did use more concerned. Is that fair to say? I think there is a possibility that there will be some agreement. But on the other hand, I think because of the symbolism of Amona and because of the way things are going um, and because of the split that's happening, not just in Israel, but all over the world, where political parties are becoming more entrenched and divided, I think there's less room to maneuver now than there has been previously. Uh, I feel like it's going to be, I think that they are certainly polarized and radicalized, but because 
the mainstream of the Israeli right, Israeli religious community, I think will put a tremendous amount of pressure. And I'm hoping that they maybe can convince them that they can actually, they'll get more resources, they'll, they'll buy them off, I'm, I think is what is going to happen. But I'm, maybe just, I'm being too hopeful. All right. Well, at the end of December, we'll play back your prediction, guys. See. But also, uh, we'll keep our eye on it because we may have to do another one uh, uh, if you guys are right. Unfortunately, I assume. I assume we're assuming that this is a story we're going to have to keep on top of and keep you up to date with. Um, but hopefully, Alan's right, and there'll be some sort of peaceful resolution that all parties will be happy with. I'm a little. Maybe a swimming. Yeah, yeah, a swimming pool. All right. Thank you so much, you did, yeah? I know you've had a hard day of work. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, you did, yeah? Thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Okay, Thank great. you, Mike. All right. Thank you, Alan. Uh, it's night our time. I don't know when you're listening to this episode, but we hope you enjoyed. Please send us feedback. And remember, you can always find us on our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org. Good night, guys. Thanks again. Or where podcasts are listened to. That's right. Where, yeah, the podcast you can get anywhere. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.